Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome persons of all religions, ethnic and racial origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and other circumstances. We extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. Please join me in reading the words for lighting our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning again. My name is Reverend Marisol Caballero, and I'm helping out Eric this morning. My pleasure to do so, too. Um, We have a call to worship that is attributed this morning to the Buddha. It's from Dhammapada 252. It is easy to see the fault of others, but difficult to see one's own faults. One shows the faults of others like chaff winnowed in the wind, but conceals one's own faults as a cunning gambler conceals his dice. When I run into people in the world and they say to me, what do all you sinners do over there at the Unitarian Church? What brings you together? I tell them that... uh, In order to get a group of people from diverse backgrounds and with diverse opinions and ideologies and other things together, you have to have a unifying core. And our unifying core is our mission. And we read it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now, today's reading is um, going to sound familiar to many of you. It's a reading of some of the lyrics to uh, one of my favorite hymns that we have in our hymnal. We'll build a land where we bind up the broken. We'll build a land where the captives go free where the oil of glad- gladness dissolves all mourning. Oh, we'll build a promised land that can be. We'll build a land where we bring the good tidings of, to all the afflicted and all those who mourn, and we'll give them garlands instead of ashes. Oh, we'll build a land where peace is born. Come, build a land where sisters and brothers, anointed by God, may then create peace, where justice shall roll down like waters and peace like an ever-flowing stream. When Meg asked me to speak today, she said that she needed someone to give a rousing this is who we are, this is what we're about, kind of a sermon. And um, I've been in the pulpit quite a few times now, but I've never had an assignment before. So um, we'll have to see how that goes. Um, Now, the title of the sermon is, of course, a riff on uh, James Brown's famous 1968 song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Um, which was, at the time when they forced me to come up with the title for the sermon, the most rousing, this-is-who-we-are song I could think of. 
Um, but when it came time for me to actually write the content of the sermon, I decided to do a little bit of research uh, into the background of the song. And I found out that um, the day after uh, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, James Brown did a free televised uh, concert uh, in hopes of quelling the threat of riots that were starting to break out across the country. Um, and that concert ended up actually being re-televised uh, for several nights running uh, as a way to give people something to take their mind off what they were feeling. And following uh, the unfolding of those events, um, as a leader in the African-American community, he was called on to take a more active stance on social justice issues. And writing this song was one of the things that he did in, in response to that, that pressure from leaders in the community, from other leaders in the community. But what really caught my attention as I was doing this research was that uh, 16 years after he wrote the song, he was giving an interview in uh, 1984. And he said, uh, if I had my choice, I wouldn't have done it because I don't like defining anyone by race. To teach race is to teach separatism. Now, I, I don't think the song crossed the line, I mean, for me personally, uh, into separatism. But I think his concern is really important because I think he's put his finger directly on what I hope will be the fulcrum of today's sermon, which is, how can we celebrate pride in who we are, pride in what we're about without that pride becoming separatist, without it turning into self-righteousness, without it turning into a feeling that we are better than them? And so that's what we're going to try and do this morning. And I decided to do that by telling you my three favorite things about this church and about Unitarian Universalism, as I've experienced it uh, as a member of this congregation. And uh, my top thing, my favorite thing about the church, is probably best expressed by something that I wrote uh, for a panel discussion on religion and the environment uh, in Saint Edward, at St. Edward's University back in 2008. I belong to a Unitarian Universalist church not because I identify as a Unitarian Universalist, but because I believe that Unitarian Universalism is the contemporary religion most closely poised to become what I would call post-denominational. It is denominational thinking that separates Christians, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Buddhists, etc. Even when Christians use the term non-denominational, what they mean is precisely denominational in its implication. We are not allied with them. Post-denominational thinking recognizes that within the context of a human meta-history, many mythologies, philosophies, and prophecies have developed. As Gandhi famously said, I am a Christian and a Muslim and a Hindu, and so are all of you. If we survey this variety of human wisdom traditions, we can begin to ascertain patterns. Some patterns reveal falseness. They reveal the self-serving, the greedy, the insecure, and the power-hungry. These are ultimately, as in Mahdi's story this morning, revealed by their fruits. Other parts of the pattern seem to reveal insight. Insight into the true nature of life and the universe. Insight into the nature of humanity and the value of 
justice, honesty, integrity, and compassion. Post-denominational religion is concerned with harvesting, developing, expanding, and teaching human wisdom regardless of culture, language, race, national or regional origin, or any other contrivance which has classically separated people from one another. So this, for me, is the A-game for Unitarian Universalism and for this church. We have both the space and the encouragement to draw from all the sources of human wisdom in order to find our own path of spiritual progress, in order to nourish souls and transform lives. We have sermons which draw from every religious tradition, cutting-edge science, literature, genre fiction, you name it. If it explores the human condition, and let's be honest, what doesn't? It's in bounds. Now recently, I've been reading A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, and he says the following, which I think helps to sharpen why the space provided by UUism is important. Tolley says, the Catholic and other churches are actually correct when they identify relativism, the belief that there is no absolute truth to guide human behavior, as one of the evils of our times. But you won't find absolute truth if you look for it where it cannot be found, in doctrines, ideologies, sets of rules, or stories. What do all of these have in common? They are made up of thought. Thought can at best point to the truth, but it never is the truth. That is why Buddhists say, the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. All religions are equally false and equally true, depending on how you use them. You can use them in the service of the ego, or you can use them in the service of the truth. If you believe only your religion is the truth, then you are using it in the service of the ego. Used in such a way, religion becomes ideology and creates an illusory sense of superiority as well as division and conflict between people. In the service of truth, religious teachings represent signposts or maps left behind by awakened humans to assist you in spiritual awakening. I agree with Tolley. You know, the truth, the one with the capital T, can't be found in words and thoughts. Those forms can at best point to the truth, but they never are the truth. So if the words and stories aren't the truth, what is needed beyond words and stories is the space for pointing, the space for the unpronounceable name of God to be revealed. These glimpses of the truth behind the words, called satori in Zen Buddhism, are an important part of what nourishes souls and transforms lives. Now, Before we fall into the trap of patting ourselves on the back for having no creed and space, I have to warn you that I think the ego trap for contemporary UUs is a little more subtle. UUs tend to be in the service of the ego instead of the service of the truth when we use our lack of creed or any other aspect of our identity to feel superior to other religions or other churches or when we assume that our way is the right way. UUs tend to be in the service of the ego instead of the service of the truth when we try to enhance our collective identity by claiming that historical figures whose ideas we respect were UUs even if they weren't. 
or by claiming that they could have been, would have been, or should have been UUs. Now, UUs tend to be in the service of the ego instead of the service of the truth when we believe that the truth is in the words and not beneath them or behind them. When we do this, we mistake cleverness for wisdom and we invite self-righteousness and ego to dominate our actions. Because Meg is onto something when she warns us repeatedly that the moment when you feel self-righteous is the moment when you are about to do something unwise. Now, I've tried my best to take her advice to heart while writing this sermon, but it is really hard advice. After all, self-righteousness feels so right. So, my second favorite thing about this church in particular, and UUism in general, is that we are moving consistently in a direction where we value being at peace over being right. Now, choosing peace in today's world is serious A-game. Obviously, dropping the creed was a big step forward in this area, but at a more local level in both time and space, we are continuing to push toward an ideal for ourselves where we find tremendous value in being at peace and very little value in being right. Let's start with our covenant of healthy relations. It is essentially the only substantive promise that you have to make to become a member of this community. And it's a document that I think is quite remarkable, both in what it emphasizes and what it leaves out. And it's something I don't think we celebrate quite enough. As a religious community, we promise to welcome and serve by being intentionally hospitable to all people of goodwill, by being present with one another through life's transitions, and by encouraging the spiritual growth of people of all ages. As a religious community, we promise to nurture and protect by communicating with one another directly in a spirit of compassion and goodwill, by speaking when silence would inhibit progress, by disagreeing from a place of curiosity and respect, by interrupting hurtful interactions when we witness them, and by expressing our appreciation to each other. As a religious community, we promise to sustain and build by affirming our gratitude with generous gifts of time, talent, and money for our beloved community, by honoring our commitments to ourselves and one another for the sake of our own integrity and that of our congregation, and by forgiving ourselves and others when we fall short of expectations, showing good humor and the optimism required for moving forward. Thus do we covenant with one another. That's it. We basically have to promise to participate and be nice to each other. We have to promise to value being at peace with one another and maintaining that peace over and above all other agendas. Why? Well, I hope it's because we realize that the product is not independent of the process. You can only create peace by being peaceful. You can only create generosity by being generous. You can only create cooperation by being 
cooperative. All other attempts to manipulate the means-ends relationship are intrinsically doomed to failure. As Gandhi says, be the change you want to see in the world. Peace is another kind of space that we create. It is a space of safety and a space for being that is necessary for the nourishment of souls and the transformation of lives. Now, my third favorite thing about our church is our commitment to do justice. Doing justice is an ongoing thing. It requires justice in our interactions with each other. It requires justice in how we choose to be in the world. It provides an opportunity for us to engage in collective action against issues of injustice in our own communities and in the larger world. When I think of the social justice work that we do as a church, and when I think about what we do that I'm proud of, one of the things that I think of is our freeze night program. It's a program that's been in operation for a long time, and it takes in single homeless men, the most underserved and arguably the most difficult segment of the homeless population. When we walk the walk, when we put our money where our mouth is, we rock. We take on hard challenges, and we step up to the plate and do what's necessary to get the work done. And in many ways, every single member of this church can feel proud of our successes in these areas because each of us contributes in our own way. As it says in our covenant, our gratitude is affirmed with generous gifts of time, talent, and money. And when I meet with individual members of our congregation and I find out about the individual justice work that they are doing in their lives and in the community, that makes me justifiably proud that this community that we support nurtures and supports the kinds of people who go out into the world and work at justice. Now, I remember when we were going through our mission development process. I was a trustee at the time, and we really struggled with how to include the word justice in the mission statement. It was really clear from all the work that we did with the congregation that doing justice and social justice was critically important to our community. But we had to put the word in the sentence somehow, and we had to find the right word to go with it, because it can't just be like semicolon space, justice. And we talked about a lot of words. We talked about valuing justice and practicing justice, but where we ended up was do. Because the only important thing about justice at the end of the day is that it gets done. And the only way to get justice done is to do it now, in the present tense, in this moment, the only moment there ever is. You can't put off doing justice until later. That's just an excuse for letting injustice continue. Now, do justice, they're just words, but they point to something really critically important about who we want to be in the world. Now, I'm going to go off script for a minute. Um, when I was, this is the part of the sermon that I struggled with the most. And part of that, I think, is because 
I've fallen into a trap that I think is best talked about by author Douglas Rushkoff in his book Life, Inc. from several years ago. And what he says is that we, as a culture, are addicted to the big fix. We're addicted to the idea that there's some grand plan out there, and when it comes into manifestation, we're going to implement it as a really huge thing, and it's going to fix all this systematic stuff, right? And we look back to things like MLK's March on Washington or the SALT marches in India that Gandhi led. We look back at these other really profound instances of social action, and we want to see a replication of that kind of scale, right? We want to see something that's that meaty and meaningful. And then when I'm surveying the work that we do around this church, you know, it's like, oh, well, there's not some huge thing that we did. But what Rushkoff argues is that the products that we're thinking about historically were products of an industrial age. They were industrial age cultures, industrial age processes, and therefore the industrial age was about its identity, its essence was about big things. But Social justice in an information age, which is what we're moving into now, is maybe not about those big things. Maybe we're just addicted to the idea of big things, but social justice, as it really comes into being in the modern age, is actually about little things. And so some of the most compelling conversations that I have with my fellow congregants are really about doing things like joining CSAs and about what kind of childcare arrangements you make in swaps with your neighbors, and doing little things that make your life more grounded and more real and less bought into uh, a mass-produced you know, culture of consumption that we all see as problematic, but we know that we just can't opt out 100%. Right? And we try not to think about it too much because it just drives us crazy, right? The level to which we are bought into the system and how broken and poisoned that system can be sometimes. So... I think that that is really the most important justice work that we do is we struggle to be better people in our lives and to make better, wiser, smarter choices about how we live. And then we share that with each other. Like we talk to each other about how we're trying to do that. Well, you know, I just I started riding my bike to work. And I just got rid of the other car because when it was in the driveway, I just couldn't stop using it. Or I joined a CSA and now I don't buy leafy greens that are shipped all the way from California in a truck every week. Or I started a garden in a container in my front yard. Like these conversations, though they feel small, I think are the core to what social justice has to be in order to make meaningful change in the world in an information age. Actually, after all, it's things like tweets, little strings of characters that started some of the peace movements in the Middle East in the last decade. The smallest things. The smallest things. So, um, back on script. What I hope that my top three list has done is paint a certain perspective of how I see our mission to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. And I want to leave you with Another brief reading from Eckhart Tolle that I think captures how doing justice from a spiritually nourished and transformative space is different than how Western culture has typically approached these kinds of issues. These days, I frequently hear the expression, the war against this or that. And whenever I hear this, I know that it is condemned to failure. There's the war against drugs, the war against crime, the war against terrorism, 
the war against cancer, the war against poverty, and so on. War is a mindset. And all action that comes out of such a mindset will either strengthen the enemy, the perceived evil, or, if the war is won, will create a new enemy, a new evil equal to and often worse than the one that was just defeated. Whatever you fight, you strengthen. Whatever you resist, persists. Compassion arises when you recognize that all are suffering from the same sickness of mind. Ego. Because ego, collectively and individually, is the shame in our game, it is the feeling of self-righteousness that corrupts our best intentions and shifts our attention and our energy from the service of the truth to the service of our own identities. Now, when we bring our A-game, it is strong. It stands on the shoulders of every giant we can find. It holds hands with all excludes none who are able and willing, and it is in the service of life, in the service of the truth. And that makes all the difference. Please join me in reading the words to extinguish the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts, until we are together again. In benediction, I offer you the words of St. Augustine. Love and do what you will. Namaste. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.com dot o-r-g